0: Hey everyone. So I am going to preach a sermon now. That's probably not a surprise to you, but it might be a good sermon. Now that possibly might be a surprise to you. Imagine if it was, I mean, a good sermon, like true and insightful and making God's word just plain and and clear. Imagine that. Even if it was a, good and true and insightful sermon. If it's not motivated by love and producing love and for the purpose of furthering love, it's worthless. It doesn't matter how true something is or how insightful. Without love, it's worthless. It's nothing. It gains nothing of kingdom value. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and And again, I'm just reading a couple of excerpts from the message here. If I speak God's word with power, that sounds like preaching a good sermon, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, but I don't love, I'm nothing. Paul goes on to say, so no matter what I say, what I believe and what I do, I'm bankrupt, without love. This means if if you do the math, the most important thing in a Christian's life, the most important thing in a Christian church is love. Why? Because love is the one thing without which everything else is worthless. Let me say that again. Love is the one thing without which everything else is worthless. This theme of love is repeated all throughout the New Testament. It's not just a 1 Corinthians 13 thing. Let me give you just a few examples of this. Ephesians 5.2, live in love as long as you live love. Colossians chapter 3 verse 4, above all, clothe yourselves with love. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, maintain constant love. Above everything else you say, everything you believe, everything you do maintain constant love. Jesus in John 13 says that love is the one thing by which everyone will know that we are his disciples. It'll be our love for one another. And so love is to be the the one thing above all other things that is to characterize the life of a follower of Jesus. You read through the New Testament and you see the Apostle Paul praying for churches let me give you just a couple of examples of his prayers for churches Philippians 1:9 Paul prays for the Philippian church that your love may overflow more and more He prays for the church at Thessalonica 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 12 Paul prays may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another You see it's it's love that's got to increase it's love that's got to abound more and more it's love that's got to overflow in our midst. It's love that was to uh, flow in them and then through them to all others, just like just like Sobble Beach waves on a windy day. When we began this um, sermon series that's called Forward Together in Love, we said that the destination of this forward journey is itself love, and not only is it the destination, but love is the, the very fuel that fuels the journey. Like if you could pray just one thing for Sobel Church, if you could just pray one thing, what would it be? I think if I could only pray one thing for Sobel Church, it would be that all of us, the Sobel online family, the Sobel in-person family, all of us together, that we would fully fully awaken to the truth that love is the center of the center in everything we do in everything that we say in everything that we pray everything that we preach everything that we teach in everything that we sing in every decision that we make in every plan that we make in every meeting that we have in every uh, committee every board meeting that that there's just this awakening fully to the truth that love is the center of the center But the danger is that love is so simple and so obvious that we miss it. How do I know that we miss it? I know that we miss it because I know that I miss it. But I believe that if we, all of us together, Sobel Church, all together, if if we just fully awaken to the truth that love is the center of the center, that love is so radical, it's so revolutionary, it's so non-religious looking, that it will just rock our lives individually and rock our families and rock our church and rock our communities. When we begin to walk in love, live in love, it's just so radical and and, and revolutionary. Um, Maybe you're um, like a philosophical thinker. Let's let's look at this, Kind of philosophically make a couple of philosophical arguments hopefully to try and drive this very same point home. So here's um, philosophical premise number one. Everything we say, everything we believe, and everything we do without love is worthless. So Paul has said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Everything you say, everything you believe, regardless of how true it may be, Without love, it's worthless. That's, that's premise number one. Premise number two is this. Love is patient and love is kind. And love is all the other things that Paul describes it as uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient and love is kind. And so if you think about those two things logically, it brings you to this conclusion that everything that we say everything we believe and everything we do without patience and kindness is worthless. Everything we say, everything we believe, everything we do without patience and kindness and all the other things that Paul says love is, is worthless. It's just a a, a creaking rusty gate. It's just uh, fingernails down the chalkboard of religiosity. It's just irritating religious noise. The only thing that gives worth to our words, to our beliefs, and to our deeds is love. That is um, just about as basic as it can get, and that is also just as profound as it gets. You can have all the right beliefs in the world. And... um, You know, we spend so much time, don't we, on on trying to be right, trying to have the right opinions and the right perspectives, and we spend so much time and so much energy defending our rightness, but you can be right without love, and it's worthless. Do we really believe that? Like, is this thing of love, is this really the bedrock upon which we build our priority system? You know, last, last Sunday we did a little walk through some church history. And um, I would say that, that for the first 300 years of church history, the church was outrageously loving, that indeed it was the bedrock of love that, that really was the foundation of their priority system. And the church grew supernaturally, incredibly. But for the next 1700 years of church history, not so much. I think for the for the last 1700 years of church history there's been a um kind of a religious spirit that I don't think is from God where where it's like love 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 yeah 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 it's so basic and so elementary and it sounds like watered down theology. It sounds like easy believism. It's cliche. It sounds superficial. Can't we get on to something meaty that we can sink our teeth into? Can't we, can't we have a sermon series on the mark of the beast or something like that? That would be very interesting actually. But here's the thing that keeps me up at night. If love is so basic and so elementary, why is it so absent? If love is so basic, and so elementary, why isn't the church by and large just characterized and known for its outrageous love? Why aren't we known for our outrageous patience and uh, kindness? If love is so elementary and so basic, why, why don't we have what Jesus had? And that is tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners just hanging around him so they could just feel the worth that he affirmed in them. They could just feel the, the outrageous patience and quality uh, and, and the kind quality of, of his agape love for them. Why, why don't we have that? Why don't we have prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners just hanging around us because they just feel the, the worth that we affirm in them because they're created in the image and likeness of God and they're worth Jesus dying for. It seems to me that the church on the whole, now there's exceptions to this, but it seems to me that the church on the whole is is a rather long way away from this. When I was uh, pastoring our daughter church in Kincardine, Blue Water Church, we, uh, in the interest of loving our neighbor, we tried some things that were, that received quite a bit of criticism not from people within our church, but from people in, in other churches and even some other clergy. For, and let me give you a couple of examples. We, we received an invitation from the Kincardine Islamic Center, which was just down the street from us, the same street. And they invited us to an open house. And uh, several of our leadership team went, Maybe maybe six or eight of us went, And um, after that, I received several emails that were of a critical nature that we would do, uh, that we would attend that open house. And um, I would say that one or two of these emails were um, racist in nature. In Concordant, the pride parade uh, goes right um, past our ministry space, which is called the bridge. It literally goes 10 feet from the front door. Like, I'm not exaggerating, 10 feet. That's how close the parade is to the front door. So what do we do? Do we lock the door and pull the blinds? Well, we decided no. And so what we did, we set up a a refreshment center right at the edge of the parade out, right onto the sidewalk. And we literally gave out cups of cold water in Jesus' name. And I received several uh, emails that were of a critical nature, not from people in our church, but from people in other churches, other clergy. And one or two of those, I would say, were homophobic in nature. And I would be lying if I said it didn't bother me. It did. But what I couldn't square in my head was those emails with the words of Paul that We've got to get this love thing nailed down because if we don't get it nailed down, it doesn't matter what else we do get nailed down. We've got to get great at love because if we don't get great at love, it doesn't matter what else we're great at. You know, we, we talk about spiritual warfare, and we should, and we should pray about it. In fact, this week at our men's prayer meeting, we talked and prayed about spiritual warfare because this world is caught in uh, warfare. And we as followers of Jesus need to be involved in this warfare. See, when you become a Christian, you, you're you enlisting in an army, and we've all got a role to play in this army. We don't live like we're on perma-vacation. We live like we're in a war zone because we are in a war zone. But sometimes Christians um, will take their cue about how to engage in spiritual warfare. They'll take their cue from the world and how the world engages in warfare. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're spiritual. So there's a big difference between spiritual warfare and the way the world wages war. The way the world wages war is by violence, by control, by... Coercion by domination, by sanctions, by pressure, by threats, cyber meddling, amassing weaponry, shows of force, and so on. And maybe sometimes it's justified. Maybe in some situations it's not justified, but it's always about developing an animosity toward the enemy. It's about seeing people as adversaries, about seeing people as the enemy, And so the goal of waging war is to win against people who are the enemy and to win using whatever means are necessary, including killing if if necessary. That's the way the world wages war. That's the way war is waged in the kingdoms of this world. But the way war, spiritual warfare is waged by the church and the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of the love of God is is very different from that. Now, sometimes Christian people will think that our enemies are other people, and that we fight against people. That our enemies are the Islamists, the LGBTQ community. That our enemy is sometimes people will think it's the it's the liberal policymakers, it's the evolutionists, it's the, the atheists and and so on, and we get, um, we kind of label people as the problem, we get mad at people, and then the church has this reputation for being angry rather than for being outrageously loving. Well, here's something that I think is critically important, and it's this, people are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. The enemy are not the Muslims, the enemy are not the LGBTQ community, the enemy are not terrorists they're not communists they're not liberals they're not abortionists they're not evolutionists they are not the enemy they're not the they're not the people we're fighting against they're the people we're fighting for see the enemy is the power of darkness the principalities and powers of satan that's the power behind all hate and behind all destruction and behind all war and all division and all racism and so on. People are not the enemy. People are victims of the enemy. We don't fight against people, we fight for people. People, all people, all people are the ones we are to be loving outrageously. The way that Christ loves, agape love, self-sacrificial love, And so we love all people, and that's the way that we win them in this war, as we model that Christ-like love toward them. That's how God woos people into his kingdom. It's by love, the love of his people. And this is so central. Everything hangs on this. So we've been talking about the kindness of love and what that looks like, and how that that means we, we go through life without this constant thing spinning in our head of what's in it for me, what's in it for me. Kindness, the kindness of love goes out of its way to benefit another simply because they're worth it. They're created in the image and likeness of God, they're worth Jesus dying for. So kindness goes out of our way to benefit another simply because they're worth it without a single thought of what's in it for you. Now it's very um, easy and probably rather common to be kind to people when there's something in it for us, right? Oh, there's so-and-so over there. I need something from so-and-so, so so I'm gonna be nice and kind to uh, so-and-so. Like kids are really good at this. Kids do this all the time. Uh, They're kind of the pros at it. Like, you know, 10 days before the kid's birthday, they turn into this little uh, angel right? They're on their best behavior or it's like December 15th and wow, the kids are so, they're just as good as gold, right? Why? Because there's something in it for them. They want to make a good final impression leading up to the days before their birthday or before Christmas. That's really smart. If your kids do that, your kids are smart. They're not kind, but they're smart. They're not kind because there's something in it for them. Adults do this as well, right? We, Extend kindness when we know it's in our best interest to do so. Husbands do this, uh, right? You know, Bob is, oh, Bob's helping out around the house. That's suspicious. Uh, What does Bob want, right? And usually the list of what husbands wants uh, wants is um, remarkably short, right? It's smart, but it's not kind because there's something in it for them. Kindness is when you go out of your way to benefit another person simply because they're worth it with no thought about what's in it for you. Something nice just to ascribe worth to them. It's the grace-filled ability to give yourself away to another person simply because they're worth it. That's kindness. I think one of the best examples that we see in the Bible of kindness is the miracle that Jesus performed, the first miracle that Jesus is said to have performed, which was uh, turning water into wine. This took place at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. So Jesus is invited to a wedding party and halfway through the party, the host runs out of wine. Uh, you probably know the story. And um, in that culture, that was like, that was, that was a huge embarrassment because culture was such a part of the DNA uh, or hospitality was such a, a part of the cultural DNA rather that to uh, run out of wine at, at a party like this was unthinkable. It was shameful uh, and a huge embarrassment. And so Jesus uses his miracle working power to change water into wine to save this host from a uh, major embarrassment. Jesus makes wine. In fact, we know from the story that he made the very best wine. Usually in this um, kind of a scenario, you if you have a host who's, maybe trying to save a few bucks here and there, that host would put out the best wine first. And um, so then by the time the party's well underway and people are engaged in the party and they're slightly less discriminating uh, than they were at the beginning of the party, the host might pull out the uh, wine that was on sale or the wine that comes in a box, right? The, the lesser wine, but at this wine, Well, the guests are ecstatic halfway through because the host has saved the best wine for last not pulling out the the lesser wine at the end and they're like this hero this this host is a hero and so jesus you know really helps this host out now this this miracle really used to bug me when i was a little kid growing up this miracle uh bugged me because when I was a kid growing up in our Baptist church, if you wanted to be a member in our Baptist church, you literally had to sign a document that you were an abstainer from all and any forms of alcoholic beverages. And, uh, you know, I knew that Jesus, as as a kid, I knew that Jesus had to be a Baptist and um, I wanted him to be a good Baptist, but this miracle kind of bugged me because here's Jesus making wine and maybe he's not a good Baptist and, and Jesus can't be a member of our church and that just that bothered me. And I was so relieved when I was taught in Sunday school that what Jesus actually made was uh, Welch's grape juice, that it was grape juice. It wasn't fermented wine at all. it was it was grape juice and I felt so much better that okay Jesus can be a member of our uh, of our church. Maybe you uh, were taught that too. If you were taught that did you uh, like, did you believe that? If you did, I'd love to talk to you after this video is over. I have uh, some swamp land I'd be interested in in selling you. I don't think the guests at this wedding party were ecstatic because the host saved the best Welch's grape juice to the end. And I don't think in First Timothy chapter 3, as Paul is... Uh, giving instructions to elders and to deacons that he's saying, don't be given to too much Welch's grape juice. Because if, you, if you're given to too much Welch's grape juice, it's gonna be problematic for you in your leadership role. Like uh, your lips are gonna to be too purpley and nobody's gonna take you seriously. I don't think that's what Paul was, was getting at in, in 1 Timothy chapter three. So I've had to come to grips with the fact that Jesus Jesus made wine, he made real wine, and it actually wasn't too hard coming to grips with that. The other thing that bugged me about this miracle was that it just seemed so trivial, right? It's like this miracle is about Jesus helping out a host from being embarrassed and he's turning water into wine. It seems so trivial, like Jesus, like look around you, there's lepers all over the place. And like these lepers have real problems, they're marginalized and they have to call out unclean everywhere they go, what a horrible way to live. Jesus, wouldn't it have been a better use of your miracle working capital to to heal lepers rather than just to do this water to wine thing and helping this host not to be embarrassed. And you know, scholars for, Centuries have kind of wrestled with the same thing, thinking that there's got to be more to this miracle than than simply just this act of kindness in helping this guy out not to be embarrassed and so scholars have have tried to come up with things like oh maybe the you know the the jar uh, that represents the soul and the water represents the unregenerate condition of human beings and the wine well that's the nature of god and and and, and so on uh This miracle is about Jesus being kind to a guy and helping him not be embarrassed. That's what kindness does. And at one point, I thought that was really trivial, but you know, the more I understand 1 Corinthians 13, and then I look at this miracle, I look at it with new eyes, because I see here's Jesus in this very first miracle that he performs highlighting the profound nature of love and the kind quality of love. Jesus helps this guy out of a really awkward, embarrassing situation because that's what kindness does. God is kind and Jesus is kind and Jesus calls us to live in love and love is kind and helping somebody out of an embarrassing situation is kind. And so that gives new uh, traction in my mind to this miracle, seeing the profound nature of what Jesus has done. Kindness is, is my wife. And I think I may, have, I may have told this before, but um, kindness is my wife, when she's in the checkout line at the grocery store, and in front of her is the young couple with the two kids and their cart is heaped full of things that they need. And when they go to checkout their credit transaction is declined or their credit transaction is declined. Kindness is my wife paying that grocery bill, which she's done on more than one occasion. God has, God can trust her in that situation because he knows that she will express the kind quality of agape. Kindness is, again, my wife, my wife is awesome. Kindness, I I think I can tell this story without, um, without breaching any confidentiality. I think enough time has passed and enough, and there's enough space, but, A few years ago, I was standing at the end of our driveway in Kincartan, talking to somebody, and I could see out of the corner of my eye, our neighbor. And um, our neighbor was was a, a young single mom. She doesn't live there anymore. But I could see her out the corner of my eye. She was trying to get in. She was in her driveway, trying to get into her truck. She was in obvious distress. Something was not right. She was naked from the waist down. And so I immediately ran into my house and got Jean and said, Jean, you need to go over to so-and-so's house. There's something really wrong. And so Jean went over there immediately and she was there for a long, long time. She came home very briefly, like for two minutes to grab a bunch of cleaning supplies. And then she went back and she was there for a long time. When she finally got home, I said, what happened? And our... Young single mom neighbor for the weekend did not have her child decided that uh, she wasn't going to eat much, but she drank a lot, got very, very sick, uh, lost control of her bodily functions all over the house. And um, so what Jean did, she went over, helped her get in the shower, helped her get cleaned up, got her into some pajamas, made a meal for her, helped her to eat that meal. Then she tucked her into bed. That's when she went home to grab the cleaning supplies and to go back over. And she cleaned up the vomit and the urine and the diarrhea that was all over that house. That's kindness. That's going out of your way to benefit another simply because they're worth it with no thought of what's in it for you. The next day that young uh, single mom came to our house, came to our door, knocked on the door. I didn't go to the door because I didn't want her to be embarrassed in any way. So Jean went to the door and I could kind of overhear what they were saying. And I heard this young woman ask Jean this question. Why are you so kind to me? Why were you so kind to me? See, she didn't have a lot of kind people in her life. And I can't remember exactly the words of Jean's answer, but it was a God thing. She said, I want you to know that whatever kindness that you felt like you received, I want want you to receive that as from Jesus. It was powerful. That's, That's the kind quality of agape. It can change a life, it can change our world. Just this past week, Jean and I were with friends and she told a story that I had known but had forgotten. You see, Jean, 19 years ago became a widow, very unexpectedly and very suddenly, a widow with two small children. And there was a man from Sobel Christian Fellowship who came to her door with an act of kindness. And that, that man still is part of Sobel Christian Fellowship today. And Jean was telling him this story. And here's why, because that moment was a pivotal moment in Jean's life. That act of kindness caused her in that moment to look to Jesus. That act of kindness in that moment of tragedy caused Jean's eyes to focus on Jesus. It changed her life. And it's changed my life because it changed her life. We don't know what the ripple effect of, of just a random act of kindness in the moment might be. Kindness looks for opportunities like that. Kindness goes around with eyes wide open, looking for opportunities like that. Kindness is welcoming a stranger who might otherwise not get welcomed. Kindness is is you in the room looking around to see who doesn't have anybody to talk to and then going and talking to them. Kindness is sponsoring a child that you'll probably never meet. Kindness is filling a backpack with school supplies for a kid that you'll probably never know. Kindness is Jesus, God in flesh, tying a towel around his waist, filling a basin full of water, getting on hands and knees, and washing the stinky, filthy feet of the disciples who were arguing amongst themselves about who was the greatest. Somebody had to wash their feet. And Jesus did it. That's kindness. That's what kindness does. It's so central to everything that we're about. Well, how do we become kind? By pursuing kindness, by pursuing kind behaviors? No, we become kind by pursuing love. Love is kind. We become kind by agreeing with the spirit about the inherent worth of all people, created in the image and likeness of God, worth Jesus laying down his life for. You can act kind. Anybody can act kind. But to be kind, you've got to pursue love like your life depended on it because it does. When I'm living with me at the center, when it's about me and my wants and my preferences, and then when it's about my needs, what I do is I start to impose my supposed to's on other people so that I can um, get them to uh, get on board with, with my agenda so that they can facilitate my agenda. But when I live with Jesus at the center, well, it's just so freeing. It frees me to love other people outrageously, even people who are very unlike me. See, when it's me at the center, and I go to the wedding party, and the host runs out of wine, when it's me at the center, I'm ticked off, because I spent $150 on a really nice wedding gift, and this is how you thank me, the wine runs out halfway through the party. But when Jesus is at the center, When the host runs out of wine, I'm not even thinking about myself. I'm thinking about how can I help that host not to be embarrassed in this moment? That's what kindness does. I have gone on too long here and I apologize for that. I've told too many stories, but let me close with this. This is a little um, kindness quiz or kindness test. You don't have to write anything down. You don't have to say anything. You don't even have to discuss this with another human being. But can I ask you just to be honest with yourself? Let's imagine that this is pre-COVID and we're in church, in-person church, kind of the way we used to do it back in 2019. It's about 10 seconds till, the start of church, the timer is counting down on the screen and with about 10 seconds to go, you see a person walk into the auditorium alone. He's six feet, five inches tall, wearing a dress, complete with makeup, jewelry, sits down four seats from you, would your thoughts toward that person be kind? Maybe you notice that they're dressed in a way that you wouldn't dress, and maybe you don't agree with their lifestyle, but would your thoughts toward them be kind? Not your thoughts toward their clothing, not your thoughts toward their lifestyle, but your thoughts toward them. Because they are not their clothing. They are not their lifestyle. They are a person of unsurpassable worth created in the image and likeness of God and worth Jesus dying for? Would your thoughts toward them be kind? Would you be ascribing worth to them? Would you have a desire to make them feel welcomed here, perhaps sensing that they might feel a little bit out of place? But you're thinking, I wanna make them feel like they belong. Would that be your thinking? If the opportunity arose, would you invite them to your home for lunch, just as they are, without without caring what your neighbors would think? Or if the opportunity arose and you were going out to a restaurant for lunch after the service, would you invite that person just as they are to join you without caring what other people in the restaurant might think or even scarier what other church people might think? See, Jesus, Jesus hung out with prostitutes. He hung out with treasonous, sellout tax collectors and vile sinners. The scripture indicates that that they followed him. They followed him around. He became known as the friend of sinners. And it doesn't say he was the friend of former prostitutes and reformed tax collectors and and, uh, former sinners. No, these people were just as, as they were. I think in most churches, um, Jesus would be fired. Like if Jesus were a pastor or a staff member in many of our churches, I think he'd be fired. The first time a church member saw Jesus in a bar with a prostitute, there'd be some kind of an emergency meeting, I'm sure, and he'd be let go. In this little kindness test or quiz, I want you to be honest with yourself prostitutes, tax collectors, vile sinners, six foot five inch men in a dress, would your thoughts toward them be kind? Not toward their clothing, not toward their actions, not toward their attitudes, not toward their lifestyle because they are not their actions, they are not their attitudes, they are of unsurpassable worth, worth Jesus dying for. If not, maybe there's an area that you can invite the love of Jesus into, to flow into you, and then to flow out from you to every person, to every person, to every person. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us outrageously loving would you help us to see the people around us the way that you do would you give us a bold vision that is flavored by your outrageous and reckless love would you give us a love that breaks down walls that the church has done such a good job of building Would you make us outrageously loving wherever we go, with whoever we talk to, no matter what they look like, no matter what they smell like, no matter what their situation, no matter what they act like, would you help us, God, to ascribe unsurpassable worth to them because you love them to the point of dying for them? Would you help us to be creative, show us a multitude of ways that we can be kind every day to the people around us, to wash their feet and to change their water into wine and to affirm their unsurpassable worth before you. Holy Spirit, would you do this? Would you do this work in us for our good, for the glory of God, the Father, and to build the kingdom of Jesus, amen. Friends, we're going to uh, put a pause on our Forward Together in Love series. Uh, We are gonna come back to it, but it's gonna be on pause for a little while. Next Sunday, um, we're going to introduce a new uh, teaching series. And this new teaching series, we're just gonna introduce it next week. We're gonna introduce it. We're gonna have communion next week too. We're gonna introduce it. It's called um, Reset, Recapturing the Creative Simplicity of the Early Church. And so we're going to introduce that. That won't be part one. We'll introduce it next Sunday. Then the following Sunday, which will be September 12th, Ken is going to preach. And then the Sunday after that, September 19th, we'll begin with part one of Reset. So I certainly hope uh, that you can join us for that. God bless you. Have a great week.